0: We are going to turn our Bibles to James chapter 1, and we are going to look at these first 11 verses this morning in James. And we begin in chapter 1, verse 1, by reading that James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings, greetings, And so James begins this letter by identifying himself as the writer of the book. Now, that might seem trivial, but what is interesting about that is typically when we write, we sign at the end. But what we've looked at in Galatians is in that day, they would often put their name at the very beginning because, as you know, they wrote on these long scrolls. And so from a practical standpoint, you didn't want to read the entire scroll wondering who in the world it was that wrote to you. And so out of politeness and kindness, they would say, hey, by the way, this is James, writing this book. And so, he identifies himself as the writer at the very beginning. And after that, he says, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, here we have James, this half-brother of Jesus, identifying himself as a bondservant. But what we know is he was actually part of Jesus's family. Now, interestingly enough for James, for him and his brothers and sisters, they did not believe in Jesus while he was alive prior to the resurrection. In fact, what we find in Matthew chapter 26 is that they thought Jesus to be a little bit crazy. And so much so that he was bringing a bunch of heat on the family itself. You can imagine their brother going around talking things of God and that he's the Messiah. And so it was coming back to the family. It was causing all kinds of issues. And so as Jesus is teaching here in Matthew chapter 12, they go out to him to talk to him about, hey, look, man, why don't you pipe down just a little bit? Why don't you dial it back a notch or two, uh, big brother? And so much so that when they see his family standing outside this house that Jesus is teaching in, they said, to him, look, in verse 47, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But verse 48, he, Jesus, answered and said to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand towards the disciples and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. And whoever does the will of the Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And so Jesus very quickly pointing the link back to obedience inside the family of God. That to be a mother or a brother or a sister, one needed to actually follow after the God they claim to serve. And so for James, he was not following after his brother. He didn't believe in what he had to say while he was on the earth. Now, we can be quick to criticize James, but I want to point out the fact that think about things from his perspective. He's got Jesus as a big brother. Any of you that have siblings out there know what kind of sibling rivalries exist within families. Could you imagine your brother being Jesus? I mean, think about it. At no point in time did Jesus leave his underwear on the bathroom floor, right? He, he didn't at any point bring home a bee on his report card, right? You never would hear from his mother that Jesus was out driving the camel too fast last night. And so over and over again, you've got all these comparisons that no doubt happen creating animosity inside this family dynamic. They couldn't match up or measure up to their big brother. And yet, what we find is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, is Jesus, knowing about all this, made sure to go visit his little brother after his resurrection. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15:7 that Jesus visited James as well as the rest of the disciples, and face to face seeing his brother now resurrected, his life was completely changed. And by the way, that's what always happens due to resurrection. When we see ourselves in in the true light, and what who I am in my flesh compared to the resurrected Christ, man, how it humbles! Boy, how it changes! A life, And if you don't believe what the resurrection looks like in people's lives, just take a look around. You see a lot of folks that are definitely changing from the inside out on a regular basis. Not who I one day will be, but I'm sure not what I once was. And so this inside out change began to happen for James as he sees the resurrected Lord. Now note, as he calls himself out, he says, James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I find it fascinating that here he is, now a believer in Jesus, the half brother to Jesus, he refers to himself as a bond servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because for me personally, in my flesh, if Jesus is my half brother, I'm telling everybody, I'm name dropping like you have never seen before. I'm like, you know who I am? I'm uh, James, half brother of Jesus. Don't like what I got to say? Who's your brother? You know who he's not? He ain't Jesus. That's who my brother is. Take that. I'm using that left and right, especially if I'm going to write a letter to you. And so here we see James, though, instead referring to himself as a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what is a bondservant, you might ask? A bondservant was one who has actually already had all the debts paid, completely wiped away, no longer needing to continue in servitude. And what Exodus chapter 21 actually tells us, about bond servants is this Exodus twenty one verse five says. But if a servant plainly says, "I love my master and my wife and my children, and I will not go out free," then his master shall bring him to the judges, and he shall also bring him to the door or to the post, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. You see, a free will bond servant was one that made a willing decision to follow after the master that says that my master has been so good to me, the only thing that I can do is just be obedient. I want to serve this master because he's provided for every possible need that I've had thus far. And so this is the kind of bondservant that James is now referring to himself as. Now, he lists that he's a bondservant to the Lord Jesus Christ. For me, at least, as I grew up in church for the longest time as a kid, I thought Lord Jesus Christ was his first Middle and last name, first name Lord, middle name Jesus, last name Christ. Little did I know this wasn't his first, middle, and last, but instead his title was Lord. Adonai in the Hebrew it meant master. It, his second, secondly, Jesus it, in Hebrew it was Yeshua. It means Jehovah is salvation. It defined his mission on this earth. He was he has come to save his people, and finally a Christ or Mashiach in the Hebrew it means anointed one and so what we find is Jesus in calling him the Lord Jesus Christ he's actually giving his title his mission and his calling all one wrapped up together now that's important for us to know because the the order is Lord Jesus Christ and so many times we want a savior, right? We're excited about a savior. I am at least. When I look at all my flaws and all my fumbles, I love the idea of Jesus, my savior, right? Taking away my sins. That's fantastic. But what we struggle with is, are you willing to make him your Lord? Are you willing to actually be obedient in this life? Because he must first be your Lord if he is to be your savior. And so the two go together very clearly. Now then, finally, he says, to the 12 tribes, which are scattered abroad, uh, greetings, giving the standard greeting there. But he lists out the 12 tribes, speaking specifically of the diaspora, or the, these Messianic Jews that have been dispersed throughout all the known worlds. If you've heard that phrase, diaspora, that's where that comes from. They have been dispersed because of persecution. Persecution. There had been a tremendous amount of persecution happening there in Jerusalem. And so they were scattered throughout all the known world. And now James is writing a letter to those who have suffered much loss. And he says in verse 2, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And so James's encouragement was, hey, when you're in trials and persecution, uh, count it as joy. Well, thank you, James. <laughs> I mean, how, how easy is that? But here for these people who grew up with rules and regulations under the Hebrew law, they're now free in Christ, and yet they have all these trials now coming their way. Some of your Bible translations might actually call this uh, temptations, when you fall into various temptations. And you might ask, why do some translations say trial, and some say temptation? Which one is it? And the answer is, yes, it is both. Because in the Greek, the word is actually... uh, The same, trial and temptation. And what you find, and we're going to look at this a little bit today, is that Satan's temptations are actually God's trials. What Satan wants to do as he is allowed to tempt us in our life is he wants to seek us, to kill us, to destroy us, to, to tear apart our lives in every possible way. But what God wants to do is he wants to actually grow us. He wants to see us improved. This is a trial, not so much so God can know our character, but it's so I can know my character. I'm usually shocked by how awful my character is. God is never surprised. And so he allows these trials in our lives for a few different reasons. First of all, it's a way that he can show his faithfulness, even when I am not faithful at all. He can show his faithfulness in my life. Secondly, it shows us that he will sustain us and I can rely upon him through the middle of this trial. I can rely upon him in every possible storm in my life. Finally, what we see is he uses these trials in our lives to actually mature us, to grow us in our relationship with him. And so what we find is in the Bible, in particular in the book of Job, maybe one of the most famous books in all the Old Testament on trials in one's life now if you want to turn with me there to the book of job what we see in this is that job in the first chapter what we find is actually a vision or a view into the heavenly scene and interestingly enough is here's god on his throne in heaven and all the sons of god they're referred to and actually angels is who they are they're coming to report to god about their activities what have they been up to And one angel, it's interesting that he appears before God because it is actually Satan, a fallen angel. And Satan gets asked point blank by God, hey, what have you been up to, bud? And Satan gives the answer, well, I've been going to and fro, this way and that, messing with people over here, messing with people over there. And then what God asks next in one of the most chilling verses in all the Old Testament, he says, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth? a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. Have you considered my servant Job? And Satan's response to this is, yeah, I've considered him, but you put a hedge of protection around him. Besides, of course, he honors you and worships you. You've given him everything. He's got money. He's got a family. He's got his health. He's doing so well. Why wouldn't he praise you? Let me at him just a little bit, and you'll see he'll curse you to your face so God allows Satan to tempt Job. And what we find is over the next several verses, Job loses everything. He loses his family. He loses his financial status. He even loses his health. All to which Job says in chapter 1, verse 21, he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord what a response. I mean, here's Job. He's lost everything, and yet he is still able to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And so a tremendous example we see in his life. And from this point forward, over the next several chapters, actually all the way to chapter 38, we see Job, who did not question God or curse God, uh, what he and his family and his friends proceed to do is actually question God (laughs) for like 30 chapters. They're questioning God and all of his ways and hypothesizing and theorizing, including Job's wife, who in a very loving and uh, helpful way in verse 9 of chapter 2, she says, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Why don't you just curse God and die? There are some uplifting words from your bride. Now, it's a little bit interesting that uh, Satan took away all of Job's family and yet left him his wife. I'll leave that there for a few minutes. (laughs) Okay. All right, never mind. But what you find is that, uh, by the way, I've I've heard that said before about Job's wife, how she she told him to just curse God and die. And it's kind of funny that Satan leaves her around, but uh, the reality is, you know, for Mrs. Job, uh, she lost everything too. She lost her family and her status, and her husband is now a shell of himself. And so you have a little more sympathy when you consider what she's going through. But when we look at trials in this way that are happening, what God is actually intending to do is to make something even better out of Job, to mature him in his life. And and I'm reminded of the story of Joseph, right? The story of Joseph there in Genesis where everything's taken away from him too. He was the number one son in the family, but his own brothers tried to kill him. Instead, they throw him in a pit. He's taken away by slave traders. He ends up in prison of all places in Egypt only to, by God's hand, actually move up into the number two and all command of the entire known world right there in Egypt. And and as a result, he's able to, through the famine that that takes place in the land, he's actually able to provide for his entire family all through what his brothers were trying to do, which was kill him. And Joseph says in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, this is one that I have underlined in my Bible. If you're an underliner I would encourage you to underline this one. He says, but as for you, speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. You see what looked like for 30 years of Joseph's life to be evil upon evil against him, what God actually intended to do was to grow him and mature him and to bring about something completely beautiful, actually to see people saved. By the way, if you've heard or you personally have a testimony of one who has been tried and tried over and over again, and yet God has carried you through, what you'll find is as you share that, just like Joseph, many people will be saved by those words right there because they're encouraged by that. God's working in our life. His not allowing these things to beat us down for all of eternity, but to actually raise us up and to do something glorious in our lives. Now, verse 2, as we continue, excuse me, verse 3. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And so what God's desire is, is not to destroy us, but actually to refine us. And notice with me in verse 2, it says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, not if. You see, the reality is uh, for every one of you in this room, you're going to find yourself in one of three spots. You're either going into a trial, you're in the middle of a trial, or you're coming out of a trial. There's no other spot you're going to find yourself in. And so it's not a matter of uh, when, but not a matter of if, excuse me, but when you find yourself in various trials. Okay, thank you for the encouragement, Pastor. What's the point? What's the point of these trials? Well, the point is, First of all, so I can see he is faithful when I have no faith whatsoever. I have just shreds of faith left in these moments. And yet God is faithful in the middle of these things. Secondly, so I can learn that he will never leave me or forsake me. Think about the disciples on the boat. Where is Jesus? He is going to meet them and not just to meet them, give them a word and walk off, but instead to meet them and to get in the boat with them. I need Jesus in my boat. I need reassured that he is not going to leave me or forsake me or leave me out in the middle of this storm. And finally, what James is hitting on here in these two verses is he gives us these things in order to perfect us or mature us in these situations. Are we willing to allow these trials to actually mature us, to grow us up a little bit? What Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Don't be conformed to the world, but be renewed, be transformed in your mind. What God is hoping to do is actually change us from the inside out to make us back into what he actually hoped we would be all along. And so we see this opportunity we have to actually mature as these trials come into our life. And what, it, what I compare it to, it's like uh, exercise, right? I know it doesn't look like I exercise much, but there was a time where I did actually exercise. And if you think about lifting weights, what you know is as you lift weights or as you exercise, we lift weight actually to the point of failure, Lifting weights, especially if you're going for a new max, you're lifting until you cannot lift any longer. And what happens is those tiny little fibers inside our muscles actually tear. And after they've torn and we go into a recovery period, what happens is post-recovery, they become even stronger than what they were before. And so our faith is very much like this. It's a muscle. As we have the opportunity to exercise our faith muscles, there's a tearing that takes place. But the promise of God is he will actually strengthen us when we come out on the other side. We're going to know that trial the next time we see it. Oh, I've experienced this before. I've seen this one coming. This storm is not completely foreign to me. And so we'll be able to go through these things. And what Job says in chapter 23, verse 10, as he's in the middle of his own maturation, his own journey This is what he writes in chapter 23, verse 10. He says, but he, speaking of God, knows the way that I take. And when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. (laughs) When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. Like a refiner, right? What you know about a precious metal is in order to refine it, you have to heat it up. You have to heat it up all the way to the point where it is now liquid. It is molten. And as a result, the impurities will actually rise to the top where it can be scraped off. The impurities are the same way in our life. We are often heated up in these trials to the point to where we feel like we're boiling. Like, I'm on fire, Lord. Only for him to scrape off the impurity, scrape off the dross for us to be beautiful, to be made beautiful. Perfect, mature, whole is the idea. Now, we all love the beauty when we see the gold refined, but what we struggle with is the process. The process is the painful part. The heating up is the painful part. But it's all to make us as fine gold. Now, back to James, verse 5, he says, If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And so he goes directly from trials and tribulations on to wisdom. Why? Because immediately when we're in that spot, what do we do? We start to ask questions. Why, God? Why me? What is happening? What's going on? What can I do? I need wisdom in this spot. And James, knowing this, he, he moves on and he says, here's what you can do if you need wisdom. Um, you can ask. Ask of your heavenly father and he will give it to you liberally and without reproach. He won't rebuke you for asking for wisdom in this situation. Now, how do we get wisdom? How does this actually access in our lives? A few things to consider. The first way is through God's people. Proverbs chapter 11. Remember, James is our New Testament wisdom book. Proverbs is our Old Testament wisdom book. And in Proverbs chapter 11, Solomon writes in verse 4, excuse me, verse 14. He says, where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. What we find is that as we begin to share and we begin to take good godly counsel, we have friends and family like this to come alongside us and we share what we have going on in our life, a trial that's taking place, God will actually use his people to be able to come alongside and give us wisdom, light in that situation, to be able to encourage us in this spot. And so, Through God's people, we can oftentimes be encouraged and we can get wisdom. Secondly, what we see is uh, through his word. Psalm chapter 119, verse 105, one of the most famous verses in all the Psalms says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. In verse 130, the entrance of your words gives light and it gives understanding to the simple. Boy, I'm so simple sometimes. I just need understanding. I need light. And I can't tell you how many times I'm encouraged by God's word. Where whatever situation I have going on, I have no idea how the Lord does it. But I I get in scripture and he just gives me light right there to my path. Now, oftentimes, he's just a lamp unto my feet. I've told you before, I think sometimes those are two different seasons. A lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I love my path being lit. But often, he just shows me the end of my feet. I can only see the next step. That's all the farther I can go. But his word speaking to us through scripture, through a devotional, through a Christian song, you just happen to turn on. And at that exact moment, God gives you the word you needed. I think about how often we're talking in our house. And I swear, Alexa is listening. Because on the book of Face, immediately an ad pops up the exact thing we're talking about right? Whatever thing on the Amazons that I thought I needed, that I was telling my wife, there it is. I must need it. Uh, Clearly, Alexa wants me to have this. But while that's creepy, think about on the other side, you've got the Lord, right? He's listening to our conversations. He knows what's going on in my heart. He knows what we're struggling with, the trial that we're in the middle of. And so turning to His Word, He gives us exactly what we need when we need it. Finally, we see that He will oftentimes Put wisdom in our hearts. What the Lord shares with Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31 is Jeremiah is facing the destruction of a nation, a nation that's turned itself completely away from God. But in verse 33 of Jeremiah 31, he says, this covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. His promise is to take his word and actually inscribe it on our hearts. What Paul does in Colossians chapter 3 is he, he takes this same idea and he then says this in verse 15 of Colossians 3. He says, Let the peace of God rule your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the peace of God actually rule your heart. Let him speak into your heart. And this word rule is like a, a sports official. At least for me, the visual that comes up is an umpire. And, and there he is speaking to my heart saying, safe, out, you better get it out right now, right? And so here you have the word of God actually speaking to our very hearts to rule over us. Now, we're also called by James here to ask in faith. Ask of the Lord in faith, not out of curiosity of heart, In other words, not saying, I wonder if the Lord will give this to me if I ask for a new Ferrari. Probably not. You're asking from a selfish heart. And so the reality is I'm to ask not from curiosity, but actually from integrity. From a pure heart, a pure standpoint. In Proverbs, back to chapter 11, verse 3, this is what Solomon says here. He says, the integrity of the upright will guide them, but the perversity of the unfaithful will. destroy them. Coming to the Lord with integrity in my heart, from a place where I'm not seeking to serve myself, but just looking to the Lord for answers. I just need answers here, God. Would you please? And so, coming to Him in such a way, what it does is it helps us to have integrity. Now, the question that lots of times we find ourselves asking is, what if I feel like I'm hearing from the Lord? I've got wisdom from counsel. I've sought his word. I feel like he's speaking to my heart. But what if I get the answer wrong? What, what if I've gone at this with all integrity, all sincerity, but what happens if I get it wrong? And so what happens all too often is we have paralysis by analysis. We're paralyzed by our own wondering of what if, what if, what if. What if? And so as I was considering that, thinking back to the Old Testament, I know you guys love the Bible stories, Genesis chapter 20. And in this spot, Abraham, the great father of the faith, well, he lacks, uh, he lacks faith. <laughs> He, he lacks faith a lot in his life, it turns out. But in this spot, his wife, Sarah, apparently she is so beautiful, so smoking hot that Abraham is scared to death that if he brings her into this next country, that this king is going to kill him so he can take his wife. And so what Abraham does is he lies and he says, well, she's just my sister. Why? Because he wants to save his own skin. And so Abimelech, the king over this land, he takes Sarah, another man's wife, as his own and puts her in his harem. Now that same evening, Abimelech lays his head down to have himself a a little dream. And as he's dreaming, the Lord comes to him in his dream. This is a a pagan king. And he says, hey, guess what? Uh, You're a dead man. That's some kind of dream, right? Hey, guess what? You are as good as dead. Why? Well, because you've taken another man's wife as your own. And what Abimelech says, and by the way, this is the first time we see the word integrity mentioned in the Bible. He says, but the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. I didn't know. I didn't know what I had done. I had integrity in my heart. And God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you did this from the integrity of your heart. For I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet. And he will pray for you, and you shall live. So he was told he's going to die. But he goes to the Lord and he says, look, I, I didn't mean to do badly here. I actually tried to do well. And God says, yeah, I know. I know what's going on in your heart. I knew the whole time. And so many times, this is us. We're not sure if we're doing right by the Lord. We think he's speaking to our hearts, but we're paralyzed. We don't know what to do, and so we don't act at all. But what God is actually far more concerned with than truthfully, anything we can go out and do for him is our heart. The heart is always the heart of the matter. Who is I really trying to serve in this spot? God is far more concerned about my character than he is anything else in my life. And so, much, so the same is true in this story. Now, verse 9, James says, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers like, like the grass, and its flowers fall, and the beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away, in his pursuits. And so uh, James goes from talking about trials to then needing wisdom to then uh, money. He immediately transitions into finances. Why? Because he knows this spot, we need wisdom, right? We need wisdom when it concerns finances. You know, thinking through this, in David's day, he had giants to face, Philistines. I don't know if you look around, I haven't actually seen a Philistine lately. Have you? That's what I thought. But what Philistines so often look like in our life are financial issues, financial troubles. And and this is the same that's true for the early church. They were struggling greatly with their finances. This is why in the book of Acts that Paul takes a great collection and brings it back to the church in Jerusalem because they were struggling financially. And so he brings this up. And James, his reminder is as this becomes such a big deal, it's all going to burn anyway. We're all worried and worked up about finances, but the truth is, it's all going to go away. The only thing that's permanent are people. And so many times we get ourselves worked up about our financial situation. And by the way, money is a big deal for both the haves and the have-nots. I've been blessed enough to see both in my life. And if you're sitting in this room, I just want to encourage you, you're a part of the have. The entire rest of the world, uh, they have not. I assure you very plainly and clearly, you have a plenty compared to the rest of the world. But the reality is, for those who have it, the desire is uh, to keep it. How do I not lose it? How does it not go away? For those that have not, it's how do I get more? How can I get to that next spot? Surely my life will be better. And what James is saying is that people are the thing that actually matters. Focus on the thing that matters. It's humans, it's it's what's eternal that's out there, and what Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount that James refers to so often, Matthew chapter six verse twenty one verse nineteen, excuse me, he says, "Do not lay up for yourself." treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal for there your treasure is also excuse me for where your treasure is there your heart will be also where's your treasure what are we storing up for ourselves what are we working so hard to try to store up and do I trust my God to actually take care of me Do I trust him to take care of my financial situation? Because so often that's the case. That's the situation. I don't trust God with these things. But the reality is throughout Scripture, he's been clear. He's provided bread from heaven. It doesn't get any more miraculous than that. Jesus came and did the exact same miracle so people could see that he was God. And then we see God providing water from a rock. And Jesus said, I am the living water. For you that believe in me, it's going to flow through you like torrents of living water. He's provided bread. He's provided water. The question is, do I trust him? Do I trust him in this place? Do I trust that he has promised to provide for my every single need? And do I have the faith to believe that? And for any of you that have had the opportunity to go to, let's just say, a funeral for someone that died way too young. I had the opportunity last Sunday to go to a funeral of a gentleman his dad used to go to this church and his dad had passed away at the ripe old age of 50. Far too young. And, and and the closer I get, that looks even younger as I go. And yet, this man loved Jesus. And what I got to see was all the treasure that this man that was just a local police officer. He wasn't, he didn't have millions of dollars saved away, but what he had was more riches than you could ever possibly understand when you saw a room full of people that loved him. Those are the kind of riches that we need to be applying ourselves towards. And God's promise is he's going to take care of all the rest. Later on in Matthew 6, verse 33, he says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all the other things get added. I find that I pursue all the other things and I hope for the kingdom of God. I get it backwards far too often. His encouragement is seek him first in all things, and he will provide. And so, Father, we thank you, and we praise you for the opportunity to study through the book of James. Thank you, Lord, for, as the video called it, the punch in the gut that we get. But, Lord, how badly we need it. Father, so often I I feel like in trials your word says I'm to, to have joy And it's so hard to have joy in these trials. But joy is a state of being, knowing that as your son, I have an eternal destiny in you. And nothing, no one, no enemy, no no work of the devil can ever take that away. Thank you, Lord, for that joy that persists. Father, would you help us be a people that can continue to cling to that, that can hold fast to that in our time of trial. Thank you so much for growing us through the things you've grown us through, the ways you've matured us and strengthened us. And while we might not want to repeat that trial, I'm so thankful for the strength that comes out on the other side. Lord, would you continue to be with us and bless us as we study this book. In Jesus' name, amen.